promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in the book of Hebrews and our first time in Hebrews chapter 11. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. I'm going to hate this class. I'll tell you that right now. I'm going to hate it because uh, the format is not what uh, I would love for it to be. Um, This is an hour that we have done uh, on a more overview basis. I believe the Word of God is multidimensional, and we're to study the length and breadth and height and depth of Scriptures, and we're to know the length and breadth and height and depth of Scriptures. And so the different classes that we have during the week are crafted specifically with those dimensions in mind. And so uh, it is the 9.30 hour where we are more in-depth, where we are more exegetical, where we tear apart a verse and we we spend more time on a text. Uh, Not so much so in this series. In fact, we've been averaging about 10 classes per chapter, uh, more or less. We had more in chapter 10. We had less in chapter 8. But on average, we've been covering uh, the book of Hebrews at about 10 lessons per chapter. And uh, that's, that's a roller coaster in a lot of respects for a book like Hebrews or a book like Romans or something that really you could spend 20 years on. This verse here, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That verse there needs about 30 hours just to tear it apart. There is so much exegesis. There is so much to understand in every word and in every connection between the words. The syntax that links them together becomes vital. And so what we're going to have today is going to be a big picture summary with some broad conclusions. And you may be dissatisfied. You may say, well, how did the pastor get to that conclusion? Well, this is not the format where we can walk you through each step of the way. I can give you little glimpses and we can talk about a few of the, the decisions that you come to and the decision process that you come to, to decide whether uh, we should understand these genitives objectively or subjectively, or, or uh, why is it that the New American Standard Bible is different from the New King James and their translations, and what was the translation philosophy behind each one, and, uh, and all the rest. All that's to say, I am thankful that God is letting me teach the book of Hebrews. It's a dream for me, has been for 25 years. But um, when we finish the book of Hebrews, uh, I would love to go back and do it again. And I would love to spend 20 years in this book, just tearing it apart verse by verse, word by word, because I think there's so much meat that, uh, that can be found. All right, so let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his faithfulness in our study today, shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your faithfulness and for your truth, rejoicing in the privilege that we have to obey your command. Your word commands us to be diligent, to present ourselves before you, workmen that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so, Father, we're here today to be diligent. We're here today to present ourselves before you, to rightly divide the word of truth. And we're here today as workmen, Father, that We're learning the word so that we can live it, so that we can do the work that you have called for us to do. We call for your blessing upon us now as we study, as you open our eyes. Humble us, Father, to receive the word implanted. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction 
of things not seen. And these expressions of assurance and conviction have about as much variety depending on how many Bibles you open. Open 30 Bibles and you'll have uh, 50 different expressions as it relates to these two terms. And uh, yet this is the privilege that we have. And this really is the follow-up to chapter 10. In chapter 10, we have uh, what's needed there is the need of endurance and the prayer for endurance and the prayer for confidence and the prayer for faith. And those items now lead us into chapter 11 and into chapter 12, which is what we're going to see here uh, pretty quickly. Chapter 10 ended with endurance and faith. These become the launching pads the launching pads for chapter 11 and 12. Chapter 11 is the faith chapter. Chapter 12 is the endurance chapter. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so these themes that brought the chapter 10 exhortation to a close really launches a couple of chapters of Bible survey, a couple of chapters whereby we, the author is going to take his readers through a, a survey, a walk through the Bible, if you will, talking about Old Testament heroes and then talking about the greatest hero of all, which is our Savior that uh, we have the whole hall of fame, the great cloud of witnesses in chapter 11, and then we have the greatest witness ever is fixing our eyes on Jesus and the uh, information that then is related to us in chapter 12. And so you can see in chapter 10, verses 36 and 39, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. And that theme will be amplified in chapter 12 with run with endurance, the race that's set before you. And then the expression in verse 39, we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but we are of those who have faith to the preserving or the saving of the soul. So when the author was, uh, was encouraging his readers as, as to which group they belong to, they belong to this group, the faithful group, not to the shrinking back group. And it's interesting that we have, of course, in chapter 11, we have the hall of fame of faith. We don't have the hall of shame or the uh, chapter detailing the, all the examples of those who shrinked back to destruction. There are plenty of examples of them that are found in the Old Testament, but they are not cataloged together in a celebratory way like we have here in the uh, the chapter 11, the uh, Hall of Fame of, uh, of faith. Now, there are various English translations. As I say, the New American Standard has assurance and conviction. Uh, Faith is the something of the things hoped for, and it is the something of the things not seen. And uh, we'll give you the Greek words, and we'll uh, admit that as we translate these Greek words, uh, that there is both an art and a science to the process. And in particular, the first word we have more to work with because it's used three times in Hebrews. This is the third and final time that the assurance word is used in Hebrews. Uh, The word for conviction, though, is only used once. And so that does not help us related to uh, like the, the other term does. We'll talk about that. So assurance and conviction. And this is what faith is. Faith is this. And so in a sense, we're defining what faith is in a sense we're defining what faith does. And as in some respects, this is the Hebrews equivalent of Paul's uh, love development of 1 Corinthians 13. 
Because in 1 Corinthians 13, we have the definition of love. Love is patient, love is kind. And we know the, the, the verses there where we get the, 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 the pure essence of what does agape love mean? What does agape love do? This is the faith parallel for that love definition of 1 Corinthians 13. Faith is the, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. If we settle on those terms, I don't think we will. All right. Uh, King James and New King James has substance and evidence Faith is the substance of the things hoped for. And I actually prefer that to assurance. Uh, This renders it more in an objective way than a subjective way. I believe that uh, New American Standard, NIV, some of the other texts, uh, Holman. No, Holman did better on an objective basis. But some of the modern texts prefer to take it subjectively rather than objectively. In other words, faith to me is. Faith is my assurance. And it becomes my subjective experience that because I have faith, I subjectively have assurance of, of what God has promised, of what God hoped for, uh, has said I should be hoping for. And while that may be true, I don't believe that's what this text is saying. This text is giving us an objective definition of faith, whether I subjectively realize it or not. You know, it's like the definition of love. Love is what love is, whether I I have that love or not. Faith is what faith is, whether I have that faith or not. It doesn't change what faith is, whether I have it strongly or I have it weakly or I don't have it at all. Faith still is what it is, regardless of my subjective uh, realization. So I do, I think the King James and New King James is then preferable. The Holman and the Christian Standard Bible actually, um, I think, takes it objectively, like the King James does, uh, takes it objectively, but maybe gives it more uh, expressions we could be comfortable with, such as reality versus proof. And reality is a neat way to think of it, uh, understanding the hypostasis that we're going to be looking at, uh, that reality is... is uh, but again, that almost approaches the subjective nature of it because what has been hoped for, we don't have yet. We'll get there someday. We'll have what we're hoping for someday, but what do we have now? What we have now is the substance of it. What we have now is the reality of it. We have the experience of it now, even though we're waiting for it to come then. So you understand why the translators struggle to, to communicate this, why I struggle. Any pastor struggles to get this across. The idea of proof as well is stronger than evidence because it is conclusive evidence. It's undeniable evidence. It's case-closed evidence. It is so undeniable that it's proof to anyone that's fairly looking at it. And if you're looking at it with, with, with fair eyes, you can't come to any other conclusion because that's the, that's the solid proof of the matter right there. And I like the translation proof. Kenneth Wiest, in his expanded translation, Kenneth Wiest was a tremendous Greek scholar, and um, he wrote, some of you have his, his word uh, pictures in the New Testament or word studies in the New Testament, four-volume set, and he, uh, he actually translates the hypostasis as the title deed, which comes from, the, uh, comes from the papyrus testimony of the first century. It comes from the common way this term was used in the first century beyond how it was used biblically, how it was used in the secular world and in, in, uh, in the Koine Greek of the day as title deed. That, so we don't have our inheritance yet, but we have the title deed here and now. We have the title deed from the moment that we're saved. 
And as such, it's very similar to what we would have in Ephesians and other passages where we have the deposit, we have the down payment of our, the earnest money of our inheritance through the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit by which we were sealed in uh, at the day of our salvation. So that expression too is kind of a curious translation to me, one I'm pretty pretty fond of related uh, related to these things. I'm going to show you two more slides and then I'm going to demonstrate for you some of the process you go through in a word study and some of the the uh, the art as well as the science that goes in translation work it's one thing you don't always when you're conveying from one language to another you're not always getting every every nuance does not always come across in the receptor language in the receiving language uh particularly and that's just with modern languages with things that are present in time then you have another step when you're not only crossing the language barrier, but you're crossing 2,000 years of culture and history related to uh, to some of these studies that we do as well. All right. Faith is the hypostasis of things hoped for. In some ways, sometimes the best thing you can do for yourself is not translate it. Just leave it as the untranslated Greek word and try to, if you're an abstract thinker, try to absorb the, the, the idea on a conceptual abstract basis first, then bring it into a more of a concrete fashion with an English rendering, with a, a translation of the term. Faith is the hypostasis of things hoped for. The hypostasis of things hoped for. Okay, you say, well, pastor, you're not helping me here. I don't know what a hypostasis is. We're going to get there, okay? But just write down the word hypostasis. The Strong's number is 5287, and it's used five times in the New Testament. Three of those times are here in Hebrews. And so that's helpful for us as we go look at those. The other two are in 2 Corinthians, and you will remember the passages if you were with us in the 2 Corinthians series but one thing that you're going to see is that it's, trans, it's brought into English in different ways depending on how it's used, and that makes sense. Most words are like that anyway. But hypostasis. If you've ever studied theology, you may have come across a theological term that applies to Jesus. And I've used it. We've talked about it. It's called the hypostatic union. All right? You've heard of the hypostatic union. Well, the hypostatic union of Jesus... It comes from the concept, the theological concept, comes because of this word, because of the Greek word hypostasis. And that's a theological consideration that was developed through centuries of church history and debates as to the nature of Christ. It does not come through any of the five uses of hypostasis in the New Testament. The, the three in Hebrews and the two in Second Corinthians, and none of them have anything to do with the fact that Jesus Christ is undiminished deity and true humanity united together in one person forever. That's your theological definition of hypostatic union. All right, that that Jesus actually stands under two natures, and he has both natures in one person. That's the hypostatic union. It's not two separate natures that are kept separate, two natures in one person. And it theologically derives from this term we're looking at today, even though the New Testament never uses this term in that context or in that application. So, the hypostasis of things hoped for. Well, let's maybe get some hints then. How about Hebrews 1.3? That was the first time it was used.
This is the great prologue to the book. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these last days or in the last of these days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world or he actually fashioned the ages, which we will also see today in Hebrews 11 the heir of all things, through whom also he fashioned the ages. And he is the radiance of his glory. He is the exact representation of his hypostasis, where it's translated nature. So Jesus Christ is the character, the Greek word is character, he is the character of God's, of the Father's hypostasis. He is the visible representation of the Father's true nature. Now we can't see the Father, but we can see the Son. And when the Son comes, He's the visible representation of the invisible, and He is the exact character. He's the stamp. See, it's even where we get the English word character. You, you stamp an image on a coin, and that image is not the, the person, but it's the representation of the person. You know, it's Caesar's image on the coin. So render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. It's the Father's image on the coin. When you see the Son, you've seen the Father. So he's the exact representation of the Father's hypostasis in uh, Hebrews 1.3. The radiance of his glory, the exact representation of the Father's hypostasis, the Father's nature, the Father's, not assurance, assurance would be a terrible translation, the Father's nature. So maybe nature is our best term. Maybe we should come back to to, to chapter 11 and say, faith is the nature of things hoped for, the true nature of things hoped for, or maybe not. Maybe we're still missing it with with that. Maybe the second one will help us out. We'll look at at, uh, Hebrews 3, the second time that hypostasis occurs. Because this uh, this, uh, this applies to us and what what we're doing here. What are we doing here? Hebrews 3 and verse 14. It's in the midst of a warning passage. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. So you're saved, you're walking with the Lord, don't fall away from doctrine. Don't fall away from the Christian way of life. But encourage one another, day after day, as long as it is still called today. And that includes today. Last time I checked, today is today. And so today is a day to encourage one another in the Christian walk. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our hypostasis. And here it's translated assurance like it is in, in, uh, in chapter 11. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, of our true nature, the beginning of our substance, firm, until the end. All right, so I've got chapter 1 where it's the nature of the Father, the true nature of the Father, the substance of the Father. We've got chapter 3 where it's 
assurance or true nature or substance. As partakers of Christ, what do we have? As partakers of Christ, what are we? What are we? Now, if it's not revealed yet what we fully will be, what are we now? Just simply as a beginning, as a deposit, as a down payment, as a title deed to what we will have when, uh, when faith gives way to sight. See, oh Lord, haste the day when, when uh, faith becomes, gives way to sight. And of course, chapter 11, faith is the hypostasis of the hoped for things. Faith is the hypostasis of the hoped for things. Those hoped for things, when we get there, we will realize them. But we don't have to wait to get there to realize them because we walk by faith now. And so that very substance, that very substance is is available now for us, for heavenly minded if we're forward-looking, if we're in the will of God in this regard. All right, hmm, well, looking at those three uses, I'm still not sure which one I like the best or what I want to do with faith the best in chapter 11. Is it true nature? Faith is the true nature of the hoped-for things? See, what is faith? Faith is believing a promise. It's trusting in the faithfulness of the one who has made the promise. Faith is placing confidence in an object because the one who promised is faithful. My faith has value not because I'm holding to it strongly or fervently. It has value because the one who promised is eternally, infinitely faithful. So faith being the substance of things hoped for, the value is not in how fervently I cling to it. It's in how faithful the Father is who said it's mine and it is mine. It is mine. It's mine now and it's mine forever. Even if my sight hasn't seen it yet. So don't wait to get there to start acting like it's yours now. Because faith is the substance. Faith is the proof. Faith, or not proof, but faith is the reality, the substance, the essential nature of the hoped for things. If you don't have faith, what do you have? This is where maybe it might be useful if I just kind of show you the process as well when I bring up uh, Hebrews 11.1. Walk you through the process. You can kind of see how some of the sausage gets made. Oh, that's not it. Let me open up a Bible and go to Hebrews 11.1. If that's too small, we can make it larger. Faith is the assurance, footnote. When they start putting footnotes in, what does that tell you? That means they're giving you options in the margins because it's, it's a tough text. And even the professionals uh, hedge their bets. Assurance, footnote, or substance. I'm going to give you those two options, even though there's more than two options. Faith is the hypostasis. And when you highlight assurance, hypostasis gets highlighted over there on the right. You can click either one and you can pull up hypostasis and you can pull up your word study. You can get your color wheel. I know a lot of folks like the color wheels. I do. All right. Used five times. 
Once it's translated nature, twice it's translated assurance, twice it's translated confidence. Confidence, holding our confidence firm until the end. It says, these are the two uses in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 9, 4 and 2 Corinthians uh, 11, 7. When he says we, not to speak of you, would be put to shame by this confidence. He says, you, you made a promise of a gift. I want you to make good on that promise. And if you're, if you're not ready, then we're going to be embarrassed. You're going to be embarrassed to find you unprepared, put to shame by this confidence. All right, so there's the uses there. How is it used in the Septuagint? What he, oh, it's used a lot in the Septuagint. 19 uses for about uh, 16 different Hebrew words. Wow, that's going to take some work. Let me show you uh, my favorite lexicon here. This is the BDAG lexicon. Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich. Otherwise, BDAG, the four initials of their last names. And, um, and now here, let me walk you through. This is where you can appreciate lexicons and then you can um, take them with a grain of salt, okay? Because they're not God-breathed and inspired. They're not perfect. They're useful, but proceed with caution, all right? Do your own word study. Don't just take their word for it. And, uh, and this, is, this is useful for us because we're talking about a language that's ancient. You know, the span of the Greek history going back to the early days, by the time you get to the Koine era, it's, a, it's already a very old language that's gone through several adjustments, several, uh, uh, particularly with Alexander and mashing them all together into a common uh, dialect as opposed to all the various separate dialects. And then it's come under Persian influence and have some adjustments to the language there. It's come under Roman influence, Latin influence, and has adjustment to the language there. Because it translated the Hebrew scriptures, it has a lot of Hebraisms in our Greek New Testament. And so there's Hebrew influences in the Greek language that we have to sort out. And by the way, it doesn't stop with the New Testament. You know what happened to Greek? It continued. It moved on into the Middle Ages. It moved on into the late Middle Ages. It moved on into the early modern world. And by this time, it was severely impacted by Turkish. And so modern Greek today, by the way, it's still spoken by, guess what? Greek people in Greece. They speak modern Greek in a continuity of a language that goes back thousands of years. And and for us, sometimes it just boggles our mind because we're so, our nation is so young. But just, uh, you know, read Beowulf. Robert will show you uh, some uh, Old English, Anglo-Saxon, the Lord's Prayer in Anglo-Saxon. He brought it with him this morning. And just read read the uh, Lord's Prayer in Anglo-Saxon or try, and we'll laugh at you and say, what's wrong with you? Don't you speak English? And the length of time in between then and now, small compared to the span of Greek that we're talking about in the Koine era. So when you start looking at things like uh, BDAG here in this lexicon, hypostasis, going all the way back to Hippocrates, the doctor with the oath, Polybius, uh, Mark, uh, uh, Marcus uh, Antonius, we have uh, the Septuagint uses. This is um, Aurelius, I'm sorry. Marcus Aurelius Antonius. Um, Irenaeus, the church father, Irenaeus. 
and all these other uses. All right, now look what it does. It breaks it down into the different usages, the different realms in which it's used, right? And uh, so number one, with an A and a B, number two, number three, number four. All right, so four broad areas, and the first one is broken down with an A and a B. All right. Now, this is where it's useful. Because if there's four main areas, the way, the way that a word is used, this lexicon will be very friendly for you and show you, by the way, this verse you're looking at uses this word in this way. It uses this word in way number one, or way number 2B, or way number three, or, or what have you, okay? But keep in mind, that's Bauer's choice. It may not be your choice. You may look at that and say, I don't think it belongs in one. I think it belongs in two. I think it belongs in four. I think I'm okay with the Second Corinthians use being over here in, in number three, but I think these Hebrew uses belong in number two or number one B or number, you see what I'm saying? So when you're reading through BDAG, don't feel like you're a slave to where BDAG puts it. You may decide, no, I'm going to put it over here based upon my study of the text and based upon my convictions and based upon how I've put this together with these other studies that we've done. And why I think BDAG has it wrong. Why I think BDAG might be trying to prove his theology with his lexicon. Okay? Read, read BDAG sometime and, and, and just uh, you have to wash your hands afterwards to, to get the Calvinism off. Okay? Because you're going to find that he, he has a way to tell you that, not, that all is, doesn't mean all, all the time. Sometimes it means all kinds of things instead of all things. And then he tries to prove it with his lexicon and you say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't say that, that doesn't say that, that doesn't say that. And so you have issues there. All right. So the first use of hypostasis, the essential or basic structure, the basic nature of an entity, the substantial nature or the essence, the actual being, the actual being of a thing. And Jesus is the representation of the actual being of God the Father. And I think that's a a clear way to, to understand that hypostasis use in chapter 1. That Jesus, God the Son, when He comes to earth, he is, the, he is the representation, the exact representation of the Father's essential nature, of His very nature or being. And so we can render this as actual being or reality. And this is kind of the sense that's used in Aristotle and Pseudo-Aristotle and Plutarch, uh, Diogenes, Art, uh, some of these other secular Greek authors. Philo, Josephus, the other uses there. The Son of God as the character of the Father's nature, Hebrews 1, 3. And uh, similar of the polytheist deities whose basic reality is something material like stone, metal, etc. And a lot of Greek mythology that comes into that. Notice the highlight in red there. Logos is helping you out. Your little research buddy is sitting on your shoulder and says, I notice you got Hebrews 11.1 1 open in your Bible. And so I'm going to color that red for you as you encounter Hebrews 11.1 1 in your lexicon, just so you don't miss it. And this is so helpful. Before they put that in there, sometimes you're scanning and hunting and trying to find the, the Hebrews 11.1 1 reference. Now they just color it for you so you can't miss it. So among the meanings that can be authenticated for Hebrews 11.1, 1, a strong claim can be made for realization. And this is what takes it as a uh, subjective use. And so we have a, we have a, a things hoped for, 
But the realization of those things subjectively, uh, we have to do that through faith. And so that could be an understanding. And uh, Diodorus Secundus there uses it in that way in his history as the realization of a plan. That they made a plan and then the realization of that plan happened when they put the plan into effect. Cornutus, Josephus, some other examples there. Um, and, they, and different people have argued for this sense. Without uh, faith, things hoped for would have no reality. Um, Coaster, a German scholar, argues for this sense also in 3.14. However, the rendering substance is uh, preferable in Bauer's opinion or Donker's opinion. The second scope is the idea of a plan, a project, an undertaking, and an endeavor. Sometimes hypostasis was just used for a plan. Saying, you know, I love it when a plan comes together. You got a plan. An undertaking, an endeavor such as putting funds together for starving saints in Jerusalem. And so they had a plan for that. And some people have debated whether uh, Hebrews 3.14 should be used in that regard. We hold fast the beginning of the plan, firm until the end. This boasting of mine, this boasting project of mine. Thirdly, it could be used, uh, we could render it in English as situation or condition or frame of mind. And some have argued for that. And the Septuagint, Ruth 1.12 and Psalm 38 are examples there. Notice how many of these Hebrews 11.1 keep showing up. They've showed up in 1, they've showed up in in 3, they've shown up in 4. Martin Luther liked um, the idea of confidence and assurance. It was really Luther that made it more subjective when it had been objective prior to Luther. Uh, it's enjoyed, the subjective view has enjoyed much favor, but it must be eliminated since examples of it cannot be found. Other examples of subjective use of hypostasis cannot be found to defend the, under, the subjective understanding in Hebrews 11.1. 1. And a lengthy article by Co- Dorian Coaster addresses that. All right. More probably is number four. And they conclude with the more probably, which means even BDAG is hedging its bets here too. The guarantee of ownership, that is the title deed. The title deed. Faith is the title deed of the things hoped for. So how do you know this is your property? Because you hold the title. You hold the title deed. If anyone wants to dispute that this is your property, you can display the title deed and that ends the dispute. This is your property. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the title deed of, our, of the things hoped for. Is that a way to consider it? Is that a way to envision what the author of Hebrews is saying here? Or is substance the better, the simpler and more straightforward rendering? Particularly because we're not done with this verse. He's going to say the same thing a, sec- a second way with other terms. Because he's going to go on to say the conviction of things not seen. And so that should help us understand the substance of things hoped for. If, in fact, conviction means conviction. (laughs) All right? So, title deed. And uh, speak, I think his first name was Celsus. He was a French grammarian. And Moulton and Milligan in the papyri, they argue for this. 
uh, particularly because of the commercial context. And in chapter 3 it's a commercial context because we are partakers with Christ. We are fellow partners with Christ. The metakos is a commercial term for a business partner. And uh, aspects here as well that could be viewed commercially. Uh, different articles, journals that are addressing this, theological word book, there's Coaster again who's arguing for the subjective case. All three occurrences, he would argue all three occurrences contrasting the reality of God with the transitory nature of the visible world. So that closes the uh, the article there. Anyway, that's just a little clue. That's part of what goes into the homework. That's part of what goes into the study. You're looking at a term, you're trying to figure out as a word study, which of these, you know, circles does it go in? Am I, am I shoving a square peg into a round circle here? Does it not belong in that box? Does it fit better in this box? Or is there a fifth box out there that, that BDAG didn't come up with? Is there a usage that really defies any of those four uh, descriptions? But by its usage, we feel that really the sense of it should be this other translation here. Maybe I'm going to create a translation that BDAG didn't generate. Because maybe there's other lexicons that generated uh, translations that BDAG did not uh, generate. Remember, BDAG is just the top of how many lexicons available to us? TDNT, TLNT, ESL, EDNT, LSJ. We've got 30 different lexicons. So BDAG is just the first of the lexicons. And there may be other translations as well. All right. Enough of that. Hmm. All right, so faith is the hoopostasis of things hoped for. I've got a package of hoped for things. And the reason why I have a package of hoped for things is because I'm in Christ. And Christ has all kinds of things in front of Him. And it's the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. Jesus is the heir of all things. And those things are going to be unveiled in a, in a glorious plan in the coming millennium and in the coming fullness of time in the new heavens and on the new earth. And so there's a package of hoped for things. And I presently now walk by faith. I presently now in living my faith in light of those hoped for things am going to be well pleasing to God. That's what chapter 11 is going to take us to. Okay. Faith is also the elenkos of things not seen. Faith is the elenkos of things not seen. Elenkos is proof, evidence, testimony. Not in the New Testament, but we do have Septuagint usages and we have secular Greek usages that, that make it very clear. Uh, this is the only place that Elenkos shows up in the New Testament. So we were hoping that the second term was going to give us help for that first term because they're used in parallel. Well, it does, but it's on less footing than the first one was. At least the first one had, th- had five New Testament uses. They were all scattered, <laughs> but there were five of them. The second one only has one New Testament use, and we're looking at it, the elenkos of things not seen. So I haven't seen it, but I've seen it. How do I see what I haven't seen? And this is why it's useful for us to, to recognize that the issue here is the fact that it's a spiritual, physical contrast. It's also a, a not yet contrast. Because in the plan of God, it has not yet been manifest on this earth, but it's still just as sure and secure as everything else that, that has been manifest on this earth. So there's the spiritual dimension, 
I've got to look at it with my spiritual eyes. There's also the time dimension. I'm still in the church age, and these hoped for things are in the age to come. These hoped for things are fullness of time, not church age, when they will be unveiled. Alenkos, number 1650. Evidence of events not yet observed. That's how I like to render this. The evidence of events not yet observed. While this is the only New Testament usage, the Septuagint has 31 uh, uses. That's when they took the Old Testament from Hebrew and they put it into Greek. So a lot of times those Koine Greek expressions are very helpful for us in uh, the New Testament usage. And in plenty of places, the New Testament's actually quoting the Septuagint instead of quoting the Hebrew Old Testament. And we have two useful, helpful usages in Job. In Job 23, verse 4 and verse 7, that I think go, do the best at, uh, at uh, clearing up our issue here in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Job chapter 23, verse 4 and verse 7. Job uh, replied, even today my complaint is rebellion. His hand is heavy despite my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. Remember, Job's a judge. He's a lawyer. And he has a complaint against God. He, the only problem is he can't, he can't force his way into the, the heavenly courtroom. That I, might, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with elenkos, with arguments. He has proof. All he has to do is get his proof admitted to court. This is a proving argument. In verse 7, there the upright would reason with him and I would be delivered forever from my judge. This is not only is it evidence, it's conclusive evidence. It is undeniable proof to any fair judge. And so I like these. Anyway, this is part of Job's argument that God was not being fair and that because he was God and could pull rank and hide in heaven and Job was a human and stuck on earth, that, uh, that Job was, all Job could do was just suffer uh, unfairly because he had no way to stand in the presence of God until he died. And then when he died... He, uh, that's when he planned to give God the whatnot because he knew that he was going to stand before his Redeemer. Anyway, the argument's there from the book of Job. So being able to present evidence. Faith is the evidence, the proof, the proving evidence of things not seen. Of things not seen. So if there's still hope for, remember, who hopes for what he already sees? We hope for the things that are unseen. By definition, the things you're hoping for, you haven't seen yet. See, if you, if you already see it, why do you hope for what you already have seen? Hope is forward-looking. Romans 8 talks about that and other passages. And so the linking here between the hoped-for things and the unseen things, they're the same things. And faith is the same faith, whether it's the hypostasis or it's the elenkos. It's the hypostasis of the hoped for things, it's the elenkos of the unseen things. And the hoped for things and the unseen things are the same things. And faith is what we have now. Faith is what we have now because remember, 
We walk by faith and not by sight. And so the unseen things aren't a problem because of faith. Faith is the substance of the unseen, of the hoped for things. It is the evidence of the unseen things. That's what we have as we have faith in our Christian walk. The juxtaposition of physical sight with spiritual sight has two significant New Testament develop, developments, both by Paul, followed by this Hebrews development, which bridges the Old Testament and the New Testament in scope. The neat thing about walking by faith and not by sight is it's true for every stewardship. It's true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. And while Paul's developments in 2 Corinthians 4 and Romans 8, those are essentially church age applications for believers today that are royal family of God, it's not unique to us. I think the author of Hebrews is, is so uh, great at taking this hall of fame of faith. Every last one of them is an Old Testament believer. Every last one of them. The author here is not going to include the apostles. He's not going to include Paul. He's not going to lose any New Testament saint. He's limiting his survey to the men of old. The elders, the presbyters, the men of old. Because he's talking to these Levitical priests. He's talking to these Levitical priests, these men that are on the verge of abandoning New Testament Christianity and going back to, going back to their Levitical priesthood. And, and this is almost, in a sense, kind of an addendum to his earlier argument about endurance and faith. Because that's nothing new. It's always been endurance and faith. From the Old Testament through the New Testament, it's always about our endurance and our faith. Running with endurance and walking by faith. So the juxtaposition of physical sight with spiritual sight has two significant New Testament developments. And these ought to be clear. You should be familiar with these in case you're not. 2 Corinthians 4. This is why we don't judge. We don't um, make spiritual judgments based upon physical sight. We don't uh, make Christian decisions based upon earthly wisdom. We want to make all of our Christian decisions, all of our church decisions based upon heavenly wisdom, God's wisdom from the Word of God, not the world's wisdom from below. God makes the world's wisdom foolishness. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18 Therefore we do not lose heart, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Isn't that beautiful? So there's physical, there's spiritual. There's the things we see and the unseen. We have, uh, we have to keep these uh, things clear in our minds. For a momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So what is it I want to fix on? Fixate on. I want to fixate my eyes. On, do I want to lock it on the problems, the momentary light affliction? Or do I want to fix my eyes on the eternal weight of glory? Faith says I can look at it now. Faith is the substance of the hoped for things. Right now, momentary light affliction is what I'm dealing with. Eternal weight of glory is still a hoped for thing. Understand, faith lets me 
view this. Faith is the substance of this hoped for thing. And so as I walk by faith, it's, I, I can ignore the momentary light affliction. I can dismiss it. I can minimize it. I can put it in its right perspective. I can thank God for it. He goes on to say, far beyond all comparison, and while we look, while we presently look, not at the things which are seen. So get your eyes off the things you can see and get your eyes on the things that only faith can see. We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things that are not seen. Remember that? We, we taught this in Second Corinthians. Keep looking at the things you can't see. Right? Now I understand some people don't see what they're looking at. But this is different. This is talking about faith. This is talking about seeing the unseen. And we see the unseen because we have the spiritual eyes to see the unseen. We have the new nature in Christ. We have the faith provision. We walk by faith and not by sight. And how about that? So we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal. The things that are not seen are eternal. This package of hope for things that faith can see is eternal, not temporal, not yet visible, still unseen. But faith gives us the substance of those things, the proof of those things. And thank God for that. So this is how Paul produces it. Now, because it's here in 2 Corinthians, we might think that it's limited to New Testament believers, to believer priests, because after all, we're heavenly people. We're seated in the right hand of the Father. We were suited to look for those invisible things. And if all we had was 2 Corinthians, I would agree with you. But we have Hebrews 11. And Hebrews 11 is outlining how it is that even Adam and Eve and Abel and, and Enoch, all these Old Testament saints, they had no Bible of any kind. And they walked by faith. They saw the hope that was yet to be revealed. Romans 8 is our other example, and I'm going to run out of time because this is Communion Sunday. Oh my goodness. Not my goodness, of course. Jesus' goodness. I have no goodness. My dad would have said, leave your goodness out of this. You have no goodness. The seen and the unseen. Romans 8, 18 through 25. And that we have the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. Even creation is groaning, we're groaning, and we're waiting for what is yet to be seen. Notice in verse 24, in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. I think this is what launched the author of Hebrews. I think the author of Hebrews keyed off of this and went forward with endurance and faith talking about this hope that we don't see yet. These, this package of things that we hope for, the things not seen. And it came out of uh, 2 Corinthians, we walk by faith, not by sight. It came out of um, Romans 8. The author of Hebrews was clearly saturated with Pauline theology. Well, the author of Hebrews, not only does he agree with the, the church age application, he's actually using Old Testament illustrations to demonstrate to his audience 
bridging the Old Testament and the New Testament in scope, showing that it has always been faith, has always been the operational function, endurance has always been what was needed, and that's true in the Old Testament, that's true in the New Testament, it's going to be true in the tribulation, it's going to be true in the millennium, it's going to be true for a thousand generations in the fullness of times. Those saints are going to need endurance and faith. All right, well, Lord willing, rapture pending, we'll pick up on this next week. Let me just give you a, one last verse here. Not only is it Hebrews 11.1 1, that tells us this, that faith is the hypostasis of things hoped for, the elenchos of things not seen, but in Hebrews 11.27, the example is given of Moses. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. How did Moses see the unseen God? He wasn't even a New Testament believer. He wasn't baptized by the Holy Spirit. He wasn't placed into union with Christ. But he could see the unseen. All of these saints could as we work our way through the Hall of Fame here starting next week. Seeing him who is unseen and by faith he kept the Passover. All right. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for this message. And Father, there's uh, there's a tremendous amount of homework and work that needs still to be done with hypostasis, with elenchos, with the objective basis of faith, whether we subjectively appreciate it or not. It is what it is. And we thank you for making it what it is. And we thank you for blessing us with the capacity of soul to respond to your word, to respond to your promises, to respond to your offer of eternal life, to trust in, uh, in the object of Christ and on the basis of our faith in Christ, Father, to have that proof, to have that evidence, to have that, that uh, both objective and subjective fulfillments of uh, the things that are already available and will soon, Father, be ours for all eternity. I pray that we understand what you've given us, that we chew on it, that we digest it. Let us, uh, let us learn these things, Father. And, and uh, starting today, we thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.